0: brother ryan it's good to see you man good to see you too dude yeah so here we are for yet another episode of inhabit yeah it feels like it's i don't know why it's always the same length but it feels like it's been a little longer since the last one i don't know it
1: does feel like it's was it a long month or something i don't know maybe just how the dates fell it was a
0: little longer yeah i think it was like a extra week
1: maybe the days have just
0: been packed more with uh you know high quality uh happiness and fulfillment yeah for sure there's been at uh, least personal for me I'll, uh, some of that and then also packed with <laughs> and also the exact opposite <laughs> of that <laughs> <laughs> yeah well here we are we are in july mid-july 2020. um it feels like the the heat is being turned up on all of us these days Um, COVID is just washing through this country and making, I think, fools of us all. Um, here we are, we're a couple months away from trying to figure out, are we going to send our kids back to school? What is that going to do? What's an acceptable amount of casualties? You know what I mean? In order to preserve the economy, in order to allow parents to go back to work. And I mean, it is just such a, um, well, it's a clusterfuck these days. Yeah. Uh, Full on. You know, and uh, which is, I think, one of the reasons we wanted to do this particular show today, because when you live in a world where the ground is constantly moving from underneath your own feet, you know, where the political Mm -hmm. winds are just like, they're not winds anymore. It's like a full-on political hurricane, and it's just blowing people around. It gets all the more important to really be able to sort of root down and find your ground. And this is, Ryan, this is building on a theme that we've been sort of establishing here for the last couple months you know last month we did a talk with um justin miles Mm -hmm. about inhabiting resistance right and if you're going to genuinely inhabit resistance if you're going to try to become sort of this you know unmovable subject (laughs) then you need some ground underneath your feet you need some solid ground underneath your feet so that's Mm -hmm. what we're here to talk about today how to find and fully inhabit your ground particularly at a time when you know just just ever-changing political realities are uh pushing us into a you know in one direction or the other yeah. and is pushing us towards all sorts of different kinds of extremism radicalization yeah. even Yep. Yeah. um so that's what we're going to talk about today is sort of strategies that yeah. have been useful for us um in terms of maintaining our maintaining our own sense of ground in our own yeah. sense of Purpose that sort of emerges from that ground. Yeah. Um, so I think this should be a, a, an interesting conversation.
1: Yeah. Uh, one framework I want to bring in here just to share with people, um, and this comes from our last life retreat, at the Buddhist Geeks, that we did in June. So it was really interesting to do deep practice together as a group with 66, 65 people um, over a week. And in the midst of all of this, you know. And for sure, I heard a lot of people talking about wanting to find, wanting to get resourced, essentially. You can say resourced or finding the ground or finding a way to navigate it. And I, I didn't know what to expect because um, I didn't know if people were gonna kind of come in with the with more of the energy, of like, we gotta fucking do something. You know, that mm-hmm. energy. I, I would have, that would not have surprised me at all. But people were also saying like, yeah, I need to find out how I can stay resourced and grounded so that I can respond. So that was the kind of context. But For me, so another thing that came up, um, uh, we've been going back through and watching all the Homeland uh, series. I Uh only saw the first three seasons, which I really loved, but I kind of just stopped and we're on the final season. It's in a fascinating series that it mirrored quite well what was going on in US politics over the last basically decade and the kind of themes they focused on in the last season. There is a guy who ends up becoming president who has Trump-like qualities. It's not full Uh Trump and my partner, listen, I both agreed that it's going to be impossible to fully represent him because it, for a lot of us, he's such an absurd character that to portray him would turn any show into like a weird comedy or something, but they did represent it. And immediately I felt in my body, frustration, you know, of, of like the impossibility of the situation with that kind of person in leadership for me. So underneath all of that though, I think is a sense of helplessness. So I think for me, in terms of getting grounded, we first have to be really honest about how helpless we feel. And I think a lot of times we don't wanna do that. We wanna to go to solutions because it's really, the situation is immediate, the, the the danger is immediate, right? COVID is immediate danger. We can't just be like, let's take a retreat for like a month and think right. about COVID, you know? <laughs> That's not the vibe. The vibe is like, we gotta think every day, like I'm putting on my mask, where am I touching things? This has been trained in my mind this year. Of like, I have to constantly be vigilant. Um, but for example, dealing with schools. So I know uh, you have a daughter, we have a daughter and we're, everybody who has a kid is thinking about school. And there's an impossibility about the situation right now that I that like, if we feel under all of it, there's helplessness, like the, the fear of sending kids to school and how that will be done and for the safety of them and everybody. Then there's also the situation of being like, in, in, the, in the spring, we had stimulus payments, we had business loans. We had bonus unemployment payments. All this shit is running out very soon. Like that whole stimulus relief is going to be done pretty much this month, the the impact of it this month in August. Then we have four or five months of school where working parents, working parents who don't work from home, who typically have gotten jobs, don't either have the money or the time or the ability to watch kids. And and yet the school thing is dangerous. So there's an impossibility over that regardless of where people land and whether they say kids should go to school or not go to school there's helplessness under it where like the whole situation sucks and there's not like a great option there, you know, unless all of a sudden the government decides to like do a UBI in my opinion and be like, okay, we're going to give everybody two grand a month until the end of the year. Other than that, it's like, what the hell are we going to do? So it's regardless of the details of what we think about everything, but like if underneath it, we really do feel helpless and like there's no real good option to me, that's the first thing to tap into because then I can feel the heartbreak. Mm -hmm. I can feel the sadness under it. And then maybe I can let myself feel some ground but until that i'm not going to feel one even want to allow myself to get grounded right. because of that helplessness is going to be eating at me from the inside right so and it's hard because it's just like really like for most people when we look at the situation it sucks every way you look at it and we're only arguing and debating what how best to navigate it but there's no like magic fix where we're like if we just do this tomorrow everything's cool no problem
0: that's
1: right <laughs> So anyway, no, that's, I, I, I,
0: yeah, I think you really, I think you really nailed it, Ryan, because that sense of helplessness is a sense of of groundlessness. I mean, that's, that's why you feel helpless because you don't, you exactly. no longer have, you know, it feels like you have sand under your feet and you don't have anything really. really and there's strong. a metaphor that I
1: want to share with the sand. Now that you brought it up, oh please. So um, this is a common metaphor I think used, but uh, Will Hamilton, another Buddhist geeks teacher, he his focus, uh, his dharma talk for life retreat was on equanimity. Out of the five phases of insight from the insight tradition, there's um, seeking, efforting, breakthrough, disillusionment, equanimity, and completion. Mm. And these are kind of phases that we can find ourselves going through stage like, and after disillusionment, which we are very much prime disillusionment collectively. One of the things he was talking about in equanimity is the experience of equanimity is like being in quicksand. And the thing is in quicksand, if you start wrestling around, you actually sink more in quicksand, or you're, you're definitely not helping yourself. But instead what you do is you lean back into it, and then you just sort of slowly make your way out of the quicksand. But that's really interesting because they, you said sand, right? So there's a sense of like, holy shit, yeah. no ground plus I'm sinking, all this stuff. And so that's counterintuitive to accept the situation that this is where I'm at, and then to just lean back and stop struggling. And that way, Actually, I do find some stability and equanimity. Like, I can mm-hmm. just be, you know, I can find some okayness in what feels really not okay.
0: okay. I will say one thing about quicksand is that my childhood seemed to prepare me for a lot more quicksand than I'm actually. <laughs> this is a constant thing. I've seen that mean before for like us growing up, our age range.
1: Like, we saw quicksand everywhere, and I've everywhere. never in my life seen it once. Ever play Pitfall? <laughs> Yeah. There's quicksand and cartoons and everything. And like, I've never encountered it, but I feel like we know how to deal with it if we do.
0: That's right. Well, no. And I think that, you know, what you're talking about again is is, is really dead on here because when people are feeling ungrounded, right. When they feel like their ground is being taken away from them, then they come up with all sorts of their own strategies to sort of recover that. Right. So oftentimes, you know, because again, people are dealing with a sense of, of, of helplessness, which translates to groundlessness, which translates to powerlessness, right? Yeah. And so when we don't feel like we have any power, when we don't feel like we have any control, what do we do? Well, there's a few things that we can do. A, we can regress, right? We can regress right. to sort of a previous kind of, you know, stage of stability um, mm-hmm. where that certainty, that sort of sense of, 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 purpose and, you know, belonging, and here's where you are sort of in relation to the rest of Mm -hmm. the universe, Mm -hmm. you kind of, you're able to recover that a little bit. So I think Mm -hmm. that that partially explains why we've seen so much regression, both on the left Mm -hmm. and on the right. It's people mm-hmm. simply trying to recover a sense of solid ground because, yeah. you know, Ryan, one of the things that you and I have often talked about is especially once you've hit sort of the self-authoring stage, mm-hmm. ground can be a challenge. Finding ground can be a challenge mm. because you are no longer sort of handed, you know, this sense of meaning yeah, and purpose prescribed. and, yeah. and you know, destiny and all of that. You have to, mm-hmm. you have to generate this for yourself, which means whatever ground you feel underneath your own feet is ground that you yourself put there. Hmm. Right. And that can be really, really challenging for people, especially when we're being heavily impacted and we're dealing with all these, these life conditions, it can be easier to yeah. just kind of take yeah. a step back. And,
1: and it seems also now that you mentioned the self-authoring stage um, and uh, I think probably your, your description there already is sufficient enough for anybody who may not know that term, but where we we shift from taking in a prescription of how the world is Mm -hmm. and how everything just is. By default, we start realizing that we ourselves can author these, how we see the world and and author our own pathway forward. And and I think online too, that's like self-authoring to the max now is like I can create whatever story I want and believe it. And even if it's not true, which can come out of like the sense of groundlessness. So I'm gonna create my own stories and not listen to anything or anybody. but for me the exiting out of that starts there starts to be a, a a realization of that we are all part of bigger systems and bigger networks like it's not just me sitting with the machine inside myself authoring everything it's like that itself is authored and it's you know how we author is authored and we're impacted and affected by everything and so there's a sense of like leaning back and letting go into that because it's like okay I'm not in full control of everything <laughs> that I'm authoring, even though it's not prescribed by society or culture or whatever. It's also not that I'm sitting in the, the, the ultimate authority seat. That's, that's an illusion. You know, that's there right. is that. That's partly true for sure. We have our own willpower, but yep. some sense of letting go there. But the
0: temptation to temptation to sort of dip back into sort of narrative belief systems, for example, which is, I well, mean, pretty easy. much the substrate of most, you know, conspiracy theories that we see circulating out there yeah. is that they're unfalsifiable narrative beliefs about how reality is sort of organized. And, um, you know, again, I understand the temptation because there is a sense, I mean, you know, when you dip back into sort of that that kind of thinking, I mean, you you're able to return to a very clear sense of us and a very clear sense of them. You have a very yeah. sort of simple understanding of how power and, you know, control. I mean, I often say the conspiracy theorists are oftentimes doing the opposite of what they criticize, say pathological green of doing. They criticize pathological green of looking at reality only through a power lens, which I think is mm. is is a fair criticism of extreme postmodernism. It's mm. an important lens, but it's certainly not the only lens. Mm. But the conspiracy theorists are often enacting their reality through the inverse of that lens, which is the control lens. Yeah, and a lot sure. of that does, I think, stem from the same sense of helplessness, grounded, groundlessness. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. And I think, again, we all struggle
1: with this right now, especially right now. We're all struggling various ways with that. But yeah, around the conspiracy things, I mean, that's even more heightened. It's really interesting. Part part of me feels like we're in this process where we're like, maybe we're going to finally like, like pu- we're, we're being purified and purifying. So like if we d- take up a practice you know, spiritual practice that is all about purification. We're like, okay, I'm going to go through this and sweat things out. We're kind of in that phase where I see it getting heightened to a certain point where maybe we're going to break through it. Like conspiracy theories is interesting. I haven't seen as many of them, but the ones people who are talking about them or who are really upset about, you know, things like measures to health, health healthy measures in COVID, you know, that's freaking out. I see it on the left and right unison like mm. statements. But it, what I feel in it again it's like it's not to ignore possibility of debate and considering different avenues but like what i sense is like s- trauma and yeah and groundlessness and helplessness and often if i had to guess it's like some sort of childhood trauma sometimes where like we didn't have control or maybe we had a parent who smothered us or or we had serious trauma where we didn't have power and it's you know playing out and that's happening collectively too collective trauma so these are things where it's like we speak to them not to negate healthy debate and healthy differences about how we approach difficult situations. Mm -hmm. It's just to say that like, if we're blatantly and strong and intensely ignoring underlying deeper feelings of like, I just feel helpless right now. If we can say that out loud and feel what that feels like in our bodies, something will, will move. That's That's my, my experience. Like the, the debate that we have will be healthier, more embodied, more responsive we'll be able to navigate and find ground in ourselves a little bit more, but it's difficult right now. I get it.
0: Yeah. Well, there's that old metaphor, you know, there's the metaphor of the boiling frog, which yeah. is a funny metaphor for a couple of reasons. So, I mean, for those who aren't familiar, the metaphor says if you put a frog in water and you slowly turn up the heat until it starts to boil, the frog will just sit in there, won't even realize what's happening and will eventually boil alive. Yeah. It's, it's a metaphor that's often used, but it's kind of funny because actually it's, um, it's false. Uh, the, the metaphor actually comes from an experiment where first they removed the frog's brain and then surprise surprise it didn't jump out of the pot now the funny thing is this actually makes it sort of a better metaphor <laughs> yes yeah, from what we're going through yeah, these totally. days uh-huh. because we have been systematically sort of dismantling the brain hmm. of our body politic for decades now and hmm. i think this is why yeah. you see anti-maskers, for example, yeah. um, all over the place. I mean, we, we, you know, we, are, we are brainless frogs. But the good news of that metaphor is if you actually do still have a functional nervous system, at some point, the heat's going to be too much for you and you're going to jump. Yeah. And I think yeah. that that's sort of you know, what we're seeing right now is we're, we're actually saying, okay, so <laughs> some percentage, some plurality of this population is now trying to jump out of the pot. And yeah. And then another percentage of the of the population is just sitting in the hot tub, loving life.
1: Yeah, I mean, th- this is just like we're in one of those times where, uh, like, using that word purification, one way or another, I feel like purification is happening in the sense of removing obstacles. That's what that I mean by that that term. Yep. Like, because <clears throat> just our narratives can't hold up against reality. You know, sometimes, like, if 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 there's a pandemic, it's a pandemic. You, you can't out out uh talk point <laughs> covid you just can't it's like it
0: yeah. so you shouldn't run an opposition campaign on your own yeah i don't uh, a smear campaign is
1: not really going to work like for you know it's just not going to work and right. so I, I but i have hope like for me so i guess it's part of it too is like I, one is like the helplessness and groundlessness but i also how do we access hope or what does hope look like um which is just something that's popping up for me spontaneous right now i don't have a i i've been wanting to write a lot more on hope because it is something that's interesting where sometimes hope feels like some naive thing amongst a lot of people regardless of backgrounds like i'll hope you know mm-hmm. you know um but there is some sense like in, inside of me of like is it possible that we can change is it possible that we can navigate the situation what would it look like if we did you know what would a world look like that would feel dignified and safe um, et cetera. So I think that's important too, to tap into that. And like, do I really feel it's possible or right now am I feeling like no way it's not possible and you don't have to push past that point. But like, that's another thing to argue that's under to, to look at that could be underneath everything else, regardless of what we're saying. It's like, if I feel we're not going to make it, we're all fucking doomed. Okay. We have room for that. We have room for that, but let's focus on that instead of everything that's coming out of that space, mm. at least for a moment. Because Mm -hmm. we're always focusing on what's coming out of these spots, like helplessness is talking and, and then, you know, cynicism is talking, but it's like, let's talk directly to helplessness and cynicism, you know, and say, well, what, what does that voice say? And let's just have room for that and be honest about it. And I think oftentimes I feel like when we do that, just by virtue of doing it, something can shift, something can relax.
0: Well, hope does seem to be as important of an evolutionary response as fear. I, mean, I don't, see how, seems, even, I don't see how we go forward without it. Yeah, no, that's, that's right. I mean, and, and it fascinates me that, you know, human beings have this incredible sort of capacity for pattern making, right? I mean, we are a <laughs> pattern making and excreting yeah. machine. I mean, it's sort of, it's sort of what we do. <laughs> yeah. And it fascinates me that, you know, uh, since the dawn of humanity, one of those sort of capacities is, in, in pattern making is in finding hope we're able to sort of constellate reality in a way that shows us an escape hatch, right? Uh-huh. That shows us like, okay, well, here's, here's a way for us to climb out of this madness so that we can create an entirely new kind of madness that we'll eventually need to escape from that as well. But for now, here's the escape hatch. Right. And it's, you know, a, a, the human mind, both individually and collectively, we get tuned into sort of finding those, those gateways mm-hmm. and finding mm-hmm. those opportunities, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is how we've gotten as far as we have. Right. And yeah. I don't think that that has any sign of slowing down now. I, of course, now what's happening is that we have all sorts of filters that we're sort of putting over our eyes when we look at things like fear and hope and right. pessimism and optimism and cynicism, you know, and all of this. Right. Um, because when you look at it through, let's say, you know, a primarily amber lens or primarily yeah. orange lens or primarily green lens, you're right. going to see three very, very different landscapes. Right. right. And then you put on the integral lens where you can sort of see all of these simultaneously and you can see how they sort of stack and how it creates feedback mechanisms. And it becomes sort of this, this actual living spiral. It's not just this inert system. It's actually like this sort of self-reinforcing, self-reproducing, self-capitulating kind of process, evolutionary process. And, you know, I mean, and, and, and that's, that's sort of, where i find my own ground and that's where i tend to find my own sort of evolutionary optimism is is being like yeah this is going to be painful but it only continues pushing forward um and I yeah. think that there is sort of um there is there is a hope to yeah you know, there totally I, i'm with you on that and
1: i guess there is some important bits there i always think like some of one of the missing piece pieces in, in the integral community or where we we can go awry and I always want to say integral in a way that has some permeability on the edges rather than like a integral but is is the compassion piece that goes with the intellect or wisdom piece where having compassion for what people are experiencing depending on where they're at in their own development Mm -hmm. you know so i can have compassion i think that's part of what we missed, maybe in the obama years uh in and on the democrat side is not having compassion for where an amber community and person is about like what are they experiencing you know in this and freaking out and of course i think for me personally trump was a response to that blind spot Mm -hmm. (laughs) a compassionate informed response so part of it that comes up for me too is like thinking about everybody where they at and how are they making sense of the world to the best of their ability in addition to uh, what their responses are and in addition to being baked into this context of information overload and people jamming you know prescribed messages to everybody about how to respond in some
0: weird groupthink ways Um, but I I think that compassion is actually a really good litmus test to actually see how, how healthy is particularly for the left, how healthy is, you know, a particular group on the left being at any given time. I think that compassion is, is one of the strongest metrics that we have because we know that a healthy liberalism, a healthy, let's say green leftism is going to come up with policies, strategies, um, And mindsets really that are speaking to that include the concerns Mm -hmm. coming from the opposite side. Right. And the expectation is if you're, if you have, if you have a green leader and an amber leader, the expectation is that the green leader is going to be able to include the primary concerns of the amber leader, but not vice versa. The green can take the perspective of amber, amber can't take the perspective of green. So oftentimes if a healthy, if a policy or a strategy is coming out of healthy green, it's going to be a policy that is actually trying to solve problems for their political opponents as much as for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. If you're coming at it from a purely amber point of view, then it's all about just punishing your political opponents right that's that's pretty much what it comes down to i think what we're seeing these days is a lot of amber on amber from the right and and the left and there's mm-hmm. not a lot of empathy and compassion being extended in either direction and that i think to me signals a dysfunction right it is a dysfunction which gets yeah. me i think to you know some of the meat of what we want to talk about today yeah. is what actually helps people stay grounded what helps people sort of prevent themselves from getting blown when, the, you know, when the Overton window just suddenly shifts overnight and let's just be real. Nobody today knows where the Overton window actually is. It's just been obliterated. And I think we're kind of waiting for it to, to re-congeal so that we have a sense of like, okay, what are the boundaries on our sort of, you know, lower left reality here? What, what, mm. what are we allowed to talk about? What are we willing to talk about? What aren't we? I don't think anyone knows right now. Yeah. Um, but I think one of the things that helps us maintain our ground is just that even by being able to look through an altitude lens and just mm-hmm. see how these things are, are, are shoring themselves up and expressing themselves, allowing you to then extend your empathy in very particular and even strategic ways to these different groups so that you really can sort of fold them all together and into at least a vision of a more holistic politics. Well, yeah. that's, a, that's a really, really good step. And I think it shows the power of the integral model itself as a framework to help us maintain our ground. I mean, so, you know, I think we can approach this conversation from a few different Mm -hmm. directions, Ryan. I think we can talk Mm -hmm. about how to find our absolute grounding, Mm -hmm. right? Which is something we've talked about a lot in the past. I mean, particularly in all of our, it's a mountain, it's not a mountain, it's a mountain again, kind of conversations. That's really finding that, that, you know, absolute ground that we, Absolutely, that we absolutely need to find if we're going to endure all of this. But then there's your relative grounding as well. And this is where mm. I think the integral map is really, really useful, both in terms of quadrants and levels and you know, all of that, just having a sense of like the cosmic address of reality and how everything sort of fits in in relation to everything else is mm. tremendously helpful in terms of just maintaining your ground. But then there's also the, the integral mindset and the integral sensibility, which is something I think that is a little bit different than the integral map mm. itself. It kind of describes what are these sort of subtle interior processes that allow us to generate meaning and to generate right. holes where once there were only parts, for example. Yeah. So there's something right. about the mindset. And then with the mindset is the ability to recognize, integrate, and manage polarities when we see them. And this is an important one too because managing polarities doesn't always mean, okay, I can see both sides of an argument. And if I'm going to integrate this polarity, that means I need to draw 50% here, 50% here. Well, no, that's not what integral polarity management's about. You know what I mean? You don't say like, well, two plus two equals four, but if one side changes that two to a three, you know, it changes yeah, yeah, all the math yeah. and we have to find that. No, 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 If If one side goes extreme, you need to be able to find a way to hold your ground and say, no, that is extreme. Yeah. We don't normalize that. Right. Um, so that's, that's where I think polarity management comes in really, really useful, both in terms of having a sense of what are sort of the general, collect, where is the collective pendulum at any given moment right? Mm -hmm. Having a sense of like a holistic sense of the body politic and the directions that this thing can swing and where that ball is Mm -hmm. at any given time. And then having a sense of where it needs to go so that you can make the deliberately partial decisions and actions that send that pendulum in whatever direction you feel like it needs to go. Mm -hmm. Um, That requires, I think, uh, you know, tremendous insight into things like polarities and into things right. like the, the four quadrants. Right. Um, even, right. even, you know, states of consciousness, what kinds of emotional states are really, really driving people these days, fear states, hope states, etc. All of this gives us just a little bit more, well, not, not a, more than a little bit more clarity and understanding and therefore empathy so that mm. we can actually begin kind of operating on the circuit board in a more productive mm. and impactful way.
1: Yeah. I agree. And, you know, as far as like utilizing frameworks, I think what's interesting, like if we're talking about from an integral perspective is to not lose sense of doing this collectively. Because obviously with like a green or pluralistic postmodern approach, there is a big emphasis on collective, right? On the we. And then integral swings back a little bit the other way, maybe going to a little more individual, but that can happen a lot. You know, where it's talking about I, you, but for example, we make good use of holacracy, at uh, in Buddhist Geeks, I mean, mm-hmm. we use it actually at power up a little bit, but we're some we're small, but it has really shown itself like we use it actually in our trainings, like we use integrative decision making uh, when we um do each meeting that we have. Mm-hmm. And what a framework does is it allows like holacracies, I think, is just a perfect example if people aren't familiar with that, but it's a different way of, of um running an organization, so rather than hierarchical top down whatever this person says, you just fucking do that. And and it's, it's one way, you know, or circular, like we're all going to be equal and we're all going to make a decision together every single time. There's no empowerment. Holacri says, you know, says if you have a role in the organization, you are empowered to enact that role to whatever, whatever, in whatever way you need to do. And there's not really a sense of, of hierarchy, but there's not a sense of like, we all have to agree or we all have Mm. to concur. This is, this is a super summary of that short summary, but the idea is like, How can we collectively work together in smart, newer systems, for example, distributed networks where, okay, where we can acknowledge different sorts of power nodes. I'm using technical language here, but like, again, where it's not Indra's net, where like, it's all equal on one level. It is right Right. on a deep level, but where also, it's not like everybody does their own thing or we all have to agree. It's like, how do we work collectively together to figure out these answers, to leverage these frameworks? because if i figure it feel like i have to understand it all and i have to leverage the whole integral framework or whatever frameworks out there you know have a library or five phd's i'm probably not going to feel very grounded right that's right <laughs> i'm either going to feel like totally overwhelmed or i'm going to get super arrogant and grandiose mm-hmm. one of the two options there so i think that's really important too and i think finally we're at a time period where we can actually enact new ways of doing things like a holacracy is really in its prime we've we first learned it Right before it was official, the first constitution version was actually published, you know, we back in 2008. Um, but now it's like perfect timing for this. It's perfect timing to do things very, very differently, systemically, and collectively. So we have to figure out how to do that together. That's what I would argue as well. And that helps ground it. So, like, we're Buddhist Geeks. It's felt awesome. We did the retreat with six, was there six of us teachers, you know, and making decisions quickly, together, efficiently, effectively, integrating the, the people on the retreat and their feedback, you know, it was really powerful to do it. And I felt like, Oh, this is awesome. I always want to teach collectively like this because then I don't have to figure everything out. Right. But I'm also really a part of it and I know how I'm a part of it. I'm also not having to be drugged through like the idiocy of like um, a flat, you know, collective meetings that, that are eternal. You know, it's like, we're going to be here for hours because we have to, everybody has to feel the same way <laughs> and that kind of thing. So anyways. Right that's what comes up for me when I think about the framework is that the framework can be really, really helpful, but we also like, how are we enacting that? You know, how are we making tangible use of that even in the simplest of ways?
0: Yeah, no, I think those three things I can kind of pull from there is, is a, you're right that the framework is not just to sort of help. um, It's not just acting as your own sort of individual compass. It's also, it's also acting as um, a real way to generate shared reality among a particular group of people so that you can then use this framework together in order to enact better, more meaningful, more impactful actions out of it. So that's, that, that, that's huge. That's, and that's a really, really important piece. Um, the other thing that comes out of it is uh, the importance of being in a practiced relationship with each other. You know, it's one of the things that I've seen <clears throat> occur within sort of the integral online community is i'm astounded this is i think how the ground how i've experienced the ground changing over particularly the last let's say i don't know three and a half years or so um one of the ways that that ground has changed is that so much of the integral conversation has been outsourced to the we've talked about this before to Hmm. these flat postmodern platforms like facebook that themselves don't have any enfoldment mechanism i know i'm a broken record on this Um, but that has actually produced a fragmentation even within a community like Integral, which you would think would be better equipped to prevent things like fragmentation, (laughs) right? right. It's a little bit ironic that the Integral community got so fragmented. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, in my sense is that if we were able to sort of defrag this community, and the best way to do that is to actually Mm -hmm. put people into a practiced relationship with each other, that radically shifts Mm -hmm. the container, that radically effects and shifts our ability to extend empathy to one another the ability to actually listen to one another and not just talk across each other which is yeah. sort of i think the common experience on things like on things like facebook and yes. i think that that this is going to be i think the key for the integral collective itself to recover its sense of grounding is finding a way to get into a a more practice relationship with each other and mm. the good news is we're you know you guys are already doing lots on your end with stuff like that you're talking yeah. about the practice groups that you're doing yeah. we're getting ready to launch a new practice yeah, awesome. platform over here in integral life that we're all very very excited about that's great. um so I'm, I'm hoping that this becomes sort of a, a new a new chapter in that's great the ever unfolding integral story and then finally the third piece ryan um that i think is, is really critically important here because we've talked about absolute practice um, getting in touch with you know the unmovable center yeah. of yourself. We've talked about sort of a noospheric you know having a framework and all mm-hmm. and all that and how important that is. Um, shadow work. You know, mm-hmm. Ken and I just did another one of our just blistering three-hour discussions mm-hmm. this la- this this weekend, which was fantastic. We haven't done it in months. He's he's been on a bit of a sabbatical because he broke like both of his legs and he's been in. <sighs> in bed for five months, which is if you're Ken Wilber and you're laying in bed, meditating, watching Netflix forever, that just sounds like a a uni kind of hell. But, um, Mm. so we did our our first show in shadow and it was, it was a beautiful show. I mean, we covered, Mm. we covered so much ground and you know, the reason I wanted to do it is because looking around at sort of how reality is organizing itself these days, it is just shadows screaming at shadows all the way up and all the way down right. yeah. you know and um i think that the 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 more we are able to sort of front load our own shadow work and in fact do our shadow work, maybe even publicly. Find a place where, well, I will say this. If you're the type of person who is really, really concerned about co- things like collective shadows, hmm. one of the best things you can do is do your own shadow work publicly so that you demonstrate to people that you have a capacity to tell where your shadow ends and where this sort of collective nebulous shadow yeah, it's a big begins, deal right? That. Because that is yep. where a lot of people get their sense of ground. They get their sense of ground and purpose from like, I am chasing down the nastiest shadows in the collective. And that gives you yeah. me meaning and purpose. And I say, that's awesome. What an ambitious and laudable goal. But if you're not actively doing your own shadow work, if anything, because if you're dealing with other people's shadows, you can take some of that in as your own itself. So it's mm-hmm. not even a matter of like, what shadows are you starting with? It's what mm-hmm. shadows are you accumulating as you're sort of, you know, mm-hmm. kind of twisting your own informational terrain to 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 yeah. make space for all of these different kind of yeah information vectors
1: yeah that's uh, i think doing i mean obviously doing the shadow that's what we talked about earlier like with the helplessness or cynicism there's going to mm-hmm. be oftentimes shadows responses to that about like habitual responses of how we deal with that when we feel helpless how do what do we do typically when I feel helpless and unconscious about it or cynical and unconscious about that we can deal with those patterns and i you know Also, if people are wanting to step up, like you said, and be leaders and do something about collective trauma, collective uh, disillusionment or whatever it might be to demonstrate it, you know, it it takes, it takes letting go. It takes, you know, when we say, be the bigger person, that's all the classic phrase, you know, but it kind of is like that. It's like, okay, I'm going to let go just being critical. And I'm going to be vulnerable, actually. I'm going to share my shadows. That takes vulnerability.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'm going to do that because I want to work through that, these shadows. And I want to show people that it's okay to do that. And even if people are going to be like, oh, look, he has that shadow. It's like, well, yeah, we all do. And one of the good example that is, I think is fantastic and really simple uh, from social meditation at Buddhist Geeks, when we use that, there is noting, which I've shared a little bit before on the show but we can do freestyle where we're just saying there is in one or two words to describe what we're noticing in our experience. And at first people are generally oriented towards positive stuff like there is happiness or there is ease or there is whatever. Um, and it takes a little bit for them to be, feel okay to say there is uncertainty or there is confusion or there is disillusionment, right? Or there is grandiosity, right? Mm-hmm. And so as soon as they hear that, they feel they have permission to be really honest with themselves and it's even more powerful when it comes from a teacher. So like, if I say there is confusion, the person goes, oh, any projection they had, they'd be like, oh, he's teaching, he's not gonna be confused or have shadows. It's like, no, no, totally, we all do. And okay, now I can be honest too. So I think there's there's relief in that. Even in that simple practice, I see a lot of release and a lot of letting go that happens in a small group when all we're, we're not even discussing things, we're just noting and there can be a letting go. So I think like, like you said, demonstrating the vulnerability uh, can be really empowering, but it takes a lot of effort these days because everybody wants to be really right about everything.
2: Right? Right. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and so it's hard to be like, cause as soon as you admit shadow, you're admitting like, Hey, I got troubles and difficulties and I don't know everything. That's a mad- automatically we're saying because that's what shadow is.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, not knowing. Well, and we, you know, we also live in a, a, a culture right now where, um, being vulnerable without about your own shadow might not be rewarded <laughs> on social media the way no, social kinda, media
2: makes you know? it
1: very scary so where i i feel that too where like i feel much more comfortable these days doing it in um face-to-face virtual things you know so like in retreats or groups or conversations like this comfortable you know yep. because it's like because you have to be vulnerable with me you know that's right um, but online, yeah, I think that's why I've seen a lot of people I know just either have exited, like I'm not even going to be on Facebook or I'm just not going to engage in certain ways. I'm only going to share certain things people are very selective about right. it. Um, because it's just too much. It's not a safe spot. It's not yeah. a safe place for it, which is even more ironic coming sometimes from people who are like in that pluralistic green meme space, because it's all about, Including people and making a safe space where sometimes it doesn't feel very safe to, yeah. to be real about the experiences because if we're going to be re- real about shadow, like what happens in therapeutic sessions with psychologists. To be a psychologist or a therapist, you have to be willing to hear all kinds of crazy shit, things that you and might normally label fucked up, but you have to hold space for compassion for it because that's the only way it gets healed. Yep. But if people feel fear to be able to share and be honest about themselves, they're not going to do it. And they're probably going to double down to say, I'm not. I don't actually even have that, because I don't want you to have any inclination that I have the thing that you want to demonize. Right. You know? Yeah. So we a have lot to of... switch that. Like that's so that's part of the groundedness. So like, how are you going to feel grounded in an online environment where you feel like people are going to are waiting to just, you know, bad faith, to, willful misinterpretations and. Of your of your it is. Like, I think, yeah. So it's like. It's about the healing process, really. It's not about accountability or responsibility. I, I mean, ultimately it is because if you're doing the healing, you're being accountable and responsible.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, but it's a vulnerable process. So yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. And again, so you can kind of see a little bit of contradiction in what I'm saying because I'm, I'm at once saying, I'm advising that people should actually do more of their shadow work yeah. publicly. Yeah. But you got to do it skillfully. Right. You know what I mean? You, have, some to do skill. it you have to be skillfully. You have to be able to demonstrate that you have the capacity, again, to tease these things apart to be like well you know what i can admit that one of the reasons i really am into let's say ufo conspiracy theories which is my favorite set of conspiracy theories one reason i'm really into that is because of xyz you know what i mean and naming out sort of like what are my weird little internal kind of dysfunctions that makes me more predisposed to thinking about these sort of you know non-orthodox ways of of looking at reality that's that's fine. And I think that's, that's sort of a good way to, you know, to go at it, um, just to be able to kind of track yourself and track your own relationship with these ideas and why they might be a little bit more compelling, why they might even be a little bit more seductive, why we might be more tempted to look away from things like you know more orthodox kind of science and you know things like that, um, why we might have a, a distrust in experts mm-hmm. or if we might have just a little bit of this anti-intellectual bent in us that was maybe yep. given to us, you know, from our parents or from oh. our culture. I mean, yes. there's any number of these little tiny shadows yep. that that can pop up. And yeah. um, it, the point is, it has to be almost a full-time job um, tracking these things down and just maintaining this vigilance of awareness I mean, yeah. to be able to identify these things when they emerge.
1: Well, I think, like, I feel like I've, I've, with myself and other people I know who've who've shifted to being much more okay with like yeah i got shadows and i work on them you know it's not like oh we need to go through a laundry list and then one day it'll be all good it's more of like i think of like if there's a palpable shift to just being okay with that reality being more okay with the fact that it seems like this is a lifelong work shadow work because especially as ken points out every time we we move up a little notch in development and awareness there's opportunity for more shadow to arise. Yep. And even if we're not going to say shadow in terms of like something gone wrong, there's always going to be things we don't know. There's all, that's that's seemed baked into reality that with more complexity, there's still things I don't know. I'm, there's still something that's subject to me. So with that, if there's a softening heart, gut, body level acceptance that this is part of reality, not a cognitive, merely cognitive then things can relax a lot. We don't have to have all the answers or all the thing, all, all of our wounds healed. We just have a different relationship to it where we can relax a little bit because otherwise we can get very overwhelmed. Seeing this a lot in the integral community of being like a superhuman, right? Well, like I got to solve all my shadows and develop all the things. And it's just going to be like, that's going to be really overwhelming and impossible. What we need is, a, you said it earlier, the sensibility, right? Integral sensibility. Mm-hmm. So there's a sensibility about how we're relating to everything. So even talking about Keegan and self-authoring, well, when we look at shadows, we're acknowledging that we're being authored by the shadows, you yes. know, like without knowing it. So that's humbling. But then also we talk again, like how is my authoring happening in the first place? What is authoring the authoring? You know, what is, what is being informing that? And again, it's not to figure it all out. It's just to say like, if we can get to the point of acknowledging that Through one, I think a development happens, a maturing happens. That's a better word. I like that word much better, maturing Mm -hmm. over development these days. There's a maturing that happens where it's like, I am aware that it's not just me static authoring everything. And I just need to author the right thing. I'm going to work with my shadows because they're authoring me. So I have more access to myself, my own happiness, and I can better respond. But also, you know, um, so I'm just aware that constantly, gosh, I'm being, Influenced and driven by all kinds of things that aren't even shadows. And I can look and examine that and be curious, creatively curious, which again takes letting go, but it takes being engaged at the same time. You know, it's not completely transcendent, you know. So for me, it all comes back. And I also I I note like we've done so many of these shows at this point, and I see comments on this on these episodes, and I see comments on some of the other episodes. And all the shows in Integral Life are fantastic. I think, but how we particularly go at this, we're going at everything in a very particular way here. It's all very much, uh, I meant the word inhabit, embodiment is a different thing. And I find that the people who seem to watch this show are very much open to a lot of things we're talking about. They're wanting to do that for themselves. And the people who aren't ready for that, don't watch this this podcast. (laughs) Like, because I don't see the comments on there, you know, like even with dealing with race, for example, very different comments on our our episode with Justin versus some of the other ones I've seen you have there where I just don't see it so it's kind of interesting so part of it is like I want the people who aren't listening to the show to listen to the show to like get yeah. that but the people who are listening I think feel very open to like shifting some of the ways they're they're engaging with life and how they're using the interval framework.
0: Well, it makes body. sense to me Ryan because I think that on this show we're often kind of coming from well again it's just a more this, this isn't just about abstractly how you know here's a framework yep. for you know, and not that that's a negative i don't want to criticize at all yeah. yeah exactly this is more this is a little bit more i mean this is a heart show more than anything i mean it's more of a heart show of taking all yeah. this and pushing it through yes having a conversation and it's a little yes. bit harder i think to just dismiss a perspective when it's coming through heart than it is when it's purely coming through mind so we're just talking abstractly about critical race theory and, you know, and all these things, there's yeah. so many more opportunities for someone to have a, a, I think a critical kind of voice there. Cause it's like, Oh, well, these ideas don't yeah. line up with my ideas. And yeah. blah, blah, blah. But when you're talking to a human being and not to just like a set of intellectual concepts, yeah. it's a little bit different, <laughs> you different. know what I mean? You, you have different. sort of, it's a little bit easier to take some of that in. And it's like, even if I disagree with some of your sort of, you know, your, the, the way you think, theoretically kind of you know postulate all this even if i disagree with that there's something about how this is being transmitted through your heart that is transmitted yeah that's great i can't i can't disagree with
1: that's great i and for me that's and again there's no criticism at all of the intellectual frameworks obviously because i use them Mm -hmm. we've already mentioned several in this uh, episode um but yeah this these days if you ask me what is needed more especially around the groundedness i'm i want to focus on whatever you already know Like intellectually, conceptually, let's work on that grounding in the body, transmitting through the heart, coming through your responsiveness. So that's where right now, it's not like forever I'm like this, but like, if you're going to make, if I have to choose a response, I'll tell everybody in their community, focus on this right now and only pursue additional models and intellect if it arises organically out of the body as a response. For example, if I encounter shadows, I'm like, gosh, I really want to work with this, but I don't know how and I need to find a way to do that. Okay, seek it out, but it's a reverse. So it's not finding a way in through interest or you know, let me consume something else. And I get, we're all different typologically. So some of us just really enjoy picking up a good philosophy book, but try to shift that for a while. Like the the time we're in right now with disillusionment, grand disillusionment and and real problems, it requires response. And some people, I saw there was somebody comment on YouTube about like, is integral theory being used by political strategists and things. other comments related to that. I think we're in a time now where it can be an embodied response. I think we talked like Ken was like way ahead of the curve. <laughs> in yeah. Predicting these problems mm-hmm. would emerge in a much you know, nastier way, and they are here. The, the, the confusion is here, but it's an embodied confusion. It's like real. It's our reality collectively that, yeah, I could start seeing like we are going to need some integral responses here. So as an organic embodied response, I think we'll be seeing more and more of that in the next five to ten years where that's coming to the forefront, even though a pluralistic meme is taking more of the center of gravity, you mm-hmm. know, in our society. But anyways.
0: Well it's funny because when I was talking to Ken about Shadow, you know, at the at the end of the conversation, um, Ken was just kind of expressing some of his frustrations <laughs> with broken green as uh as yeah. Ken is very, very good at expressing. And, um, you know, I said, you know, I told him, I was like, my response is, you know, can I take a slightly more optimistic turn? I was like, I actually welcome all this broken green
2: because it
0: is paving the road. It is creating all the right problems and all the right contradictions for conversations like these to start gaining more influence. I agree. I totally agree. You're Um, seeing the cracks in the foundation. Absolutely.
1: The cracks in the foundation. And then that's going to, yeah, get a real response to it. And, you know, there's some interesting things I've seen on Twitter recently, people, Mentioning that, for example, being like really um, anti-faults of the faults of pluralism, you know, so anti-green or whatever. But some of these are really valid, but also what's really important is we still need to integrate. That's right. Some of the, a lot of what we have realized through a pluralistic meme of like problems we have with racism. Like it's a real thing. This is not a stage we skip over. Um, you know, it's like, no, we need to do that. And that work is not totally done because life isn't so nice and neat on like stage levels. We just work through each stage and then now we're on this stage and, you know, these things, you know, are still happening. Um, so there's still embodied response to that, but, but as we're, we're dealing more and more with that collectively, like we're, we're, it seems like we're finally starting to deal on a tangible way with some of the insights from a pluralistic perspective, Through that and enacting the strategies, for me, what I start noticing is sometimes I'm like, okay, well, that strategy you're enacting to solve that problem has some faults that will get in the way of its success, you know? So like, and I think that's where an integral response will come up that's an embodied way because now we're real tangibly dealing with the problem, not just being theoretical about it.
0: That's right. Well, no, I think, and Ryan, you nailed it once again. I mean, if anytime you are anti-X, anti-anything, that is... uh, that's like a, a shortcut to your own shadow, right? <laughs> yeah. So if, you're, right. if you consider yourself an integralist and you can notice your own anti-green or anti-left, or let's even push it out, anti-state, for example, yeah. any of these allergies, I think, are are indicative of some shadow work that's waiting to be done. And in Absolutely. fact, I mean, you nailed it. If you are integral, if you are truly a healthy you know, your center of gravity is a healthy, stable integral. That means you have done the work to include green. You're not just pushing it away because it's standing in your shadow anymore, which means guess what, guys, you can occasionally agree with green. You can agree with green without being green. Now, you're always going to want to, you know, as I often say, you're always going to want to wrap some guardrails around sort of the green project, but there are obviously going to be elements of the green project that you are able to fullheartedly support. Just like there are elements of the orange project that you can fullheartedly support, same mm. with amber
1: yeah, You're well threat, and the thing really. is is like here's the when we pay attention to the integral theory of lines development, if you have a problem with what you, what Gory just said, you ain't integral on one on one of those lines for sure mm. plain and simple that's why I concluded because I looked at different comments i'm like it's a little funny if we really take a step back that we have to say that out loud is a little funny because it's sort of like how the hell are you not having a why do we got to convince ourselves that we have that we have and need healthy versions of all these stages because you don't get the other stages without it so if you feel like that's hardly existing for you or you really anti it, then that is 100 percent at least shadow and potentially in another line of development it just hasn't caught up to the cognitive realization of it you know yeah. which is totally normal all of us are part well, of that exactly Me too you know i've looked through m- you know i feel like intellectually i was there in previous years but it's more of like coming into the embodied fruition now it's happening you know like on in an act way where i'm like okay i think i can respond better from this kind of perspective but before it was just like i have the understanding but when it comes
0: to enacting it i needed to do a lot more work Mm -hmm. personally (laughs) a a sensible criticism of green that ken often kind of leads with is that you know where green really gets themselves into trouble is that they are the product of a growth hierarchy, right? Yeah, yes. And yet they kick the ladder I mean, well, I, out I mean, yeah, underneath absolutely. them. underneath them. And that, that's a fair criticism. Yeah, when, when green absolutely. deconstructs amber and deconstructs orange, guess what? In a generation, not as many people are going to be making it to green. And in fact, I think that, that we can see that in much of today's green. A lot of today's green isn't green. It's green language being used oh, by amber mindsets. And that's sort no, of- No, I, I mean, agree. Yeah, the there's expected. a- this yeah. is why like the
1: whole thing, like being human is messy. So for sure. And like why we have to be careful and sensible about how we're engaging, what we're saying, you know, being curious about ourselves, being curious about others. Cause yeah, right now it's very easy. Like, as long as I say these words, I can't be touched. That's right. a certain way. Like you can't touch my vulnerability. <laughs> you can't right. touch and question me because I'm using these words. So yeah, I think that's totally true. I see that. I see that it happen with everybody, you know, like if it's integral, it's like, can't touch me because I have this perspective or green mean because I have these values. You can't touch me, you know, where it's like, well, no, we can still all talk about how we're strategically enacting, how we're strategically responding. I can always question that. You may have a good, you may have good set stated values. You may have sharp perspectives, but we can all question. That's that's different than strategy and response. Right. Like how, how is what you're doing? What are the results of it?
2: Right.
1: And if you're, if you're real, if you really want to be a leader, you can't just accept, well, it's everybody else's fucking problem. Right. They're just not listening to me. That's right. I've been a leader in leadership position long enough to know that I, painfully I know this. <laughs> that That's just not the case, you know? they're just like,
0: nope. Well, and, and the fact that, again, if, 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 and if you are integral and you're doing sort of the same thing and you are dismissive of green or you have a green allergy or all you see is broken green, you have a belief that there's no such thing as healthy green to be found, then guess what? You are also kicking out the ladder from underneath integral that's what i mean yeah exactly it's a good way yep. of saying kicking
1: the ladder out yeah yep. we gotta figure it all out <laughs> <And> it's, <human. laughs> it. it's messy and it's chaotic yeah.
0: and it's um again as I often say right on schedule i mean i think yeah, all of these I feel right totally
1: i think that's the hope for me the hope part is like it feels right on schedule the cracks in the foundation we'd rather, we'd rather not have cracks and we'd rather not have all the suffering so long as we have it it feels like it's potent to like actually then enact change you know so yeah take that. I wonder if we want to pull in. Yeah, know, I was just going to say, I want to bring Marshall
0: this. in. And, um, you know, for those who don't know, Marshall uh, Marshall's a good, good buddy of mine, um, mostly Facebook friends. Uh, and Marshall runs a, a nice little private group, uh, which is interesting because as we're talking about managing polarities and how it's always not a 50-50 split, you know, some of the integral communities that we've seen kind of spark around um, on Facebook and such uh, has, have been sort of playing with polarities in interesting ways. So one of the main polarities I think that have have come out of this is this this distinction between orthodox and heterodox, right? And oftentimes this is kind of seen as like one or the other. Like I am either fully orthodox, I believe what the scientists tell me about COVID and climate change and, you know, all these big pressing, integral life conditions. And then you have the heterodox who are like, well, no, I, I believe in terrain theory over germ theory, or I believe in, you know, sort of this meta thing over this meta thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it can get really kind of messy and confusing. And I think that there are, there are people who both feel like, A, I have to choose one or the other. I have to be either 100% orthodox or 100% heterodox. B., A similar fallacy, people who say, I need to make a 50 50 split between the two. And I I think both of those are examples of bad polarity management. Um, And for me, you know, I look forward to talking to Marshall about this. For me, you know, going through all these kind of orthodox and heterodox views, sort of the equation that I've settled to is like there's like an 85 15, maybe an 80 20, maybe it's the 80 20 rule, or I don't know, but I need like 85% orthodox and then 15% heterodox just to kind of keep me curious and to keep me honest um and you know that's how i sort of manage those polarities um and i'll be curious to see how you know the audience itself manages them but i want to bring marshall on so we can talk about this and uh the diamond approach it's another thing he, i know he wants to talk about uh and more so marshall bringing you on over buddy oh, and the whole reason i was bringing up the orthodox heterodox thing is that one of the groups that marshall runs i think straddles this line really nicely which was something we were talking about together a few days ago marshall how you doing man
2: I'm great, man. It's great to be here. Uh, I got I got pretty frustrated waiting for my opportunity opportunity to speak.
0: It sounds like a shadow issue that you should probably yeah. Do I with. start
2: I started to see you as an oppressive power structure that was enslaving <laughs> me and cutting off my voice. So,
0: well, well, I'm glad we can squash this shadow together, brother. You're only you're only being slightly marginalized. <laughs> well, now I'm now I'm an equal, so. That's right. You're on. You're on this side of, of the uh, webinar hierarchy. Yeah. Welcome now I'm to the soapbox.
2: Now I'm part of the dictatorship here. So right. <laughs> now I can marginalize everyone else.
0: That's right. Let's was... piss off as many people as we can. That's why we brought yeah. you on. Yeah. So um,
2: you know, it was interesting when I saw you made that co- make that comment in the group about 15 ortho- percent, or 15 percent heterodox, 85 uh, percent orthodox. I was like. Damn, am I that uh am I that unorthodox? I mean, for me, it's it's like the opposite. I'm like 80% heterodox, 20% orthodox, but and this is a distinction I made in another group, that's only from a theoretical basis. Mm-hmm. From an operational or a practical basis, uh I am forced to acknowledge that I'm not an expert in any of these fields, that I'm just exploring possibilities. And I think, this is, um, I think this is the mistake that a lot of heterodox or unorthodox thinkers make is that they allow themselves to go down all these different rabbit holes and alternative narratives. But then there is this, and I'm thinking of it as like a narcissistic error Like they think then that they are qualified to then act from and make pronouncements and assertions of fact. They think they're qualified to make pronouncements about reality. Like, Oh, all those other Orthodox guys are totally wrong. And I'm like, well, maybe they're wrong. I'm I'm willing to look at that. I'm, you know, and so I spend a lot of my time, like spend a lot, I spend like 80% of my time going down all these rabbit holes and looking at all these alternative frames of reality. But when it comes to how I live and what I am recommending for others, I'm forced to humble myself, you know, in terms Mm -hmm. of what I practice because I just think it's irresponsible to like, oh, I, I watched some YouTube videos on terrain theory and now I think that germ theory is totally bunk, and it's all being pushed as part of this oppressive control structure. You know, to to which enslave is a us. common
0: refrain, Marshall, that you call out often. That 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 sort of that narrative falls very very cleanly into the general postmodern narrative that there is a single sort of oppressor that is crushing down on us from the top down, and all yeah. of these sort of complexities emerge from that simple, over hyper simplified reality.
2: Yeah. And it's it's such yeah, it's hyper simplified and reductive. It collapses like huge areas of reality. And when but you can when get I see ground
0: that, from it, it gives you a sense of ground when you do that. Oh yeah, you're right.
2: Gives you a sense of comfort, mm-hmm. a sense of certainty. Uh, belonging when you're you know when you're in those that mythic conformist space conformist of course is a big part of that you got a community you feel strength in numbers and that kind of thing and I just Mm. think we talked about this I kind of sit back and I feel envious of those people who are able to subscribe and identify with these hyper simplified narratives and they always know where they are and what they believe and what the world is and where they are in relation to that. And I'm like, I don't get this, you know, luxury. I got to wake up. It's like Groundhog Day every day. I wake up and I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the oppressive power structure thing, it, it just collapses all this complexity. And like some of these guys, they have this whole view of like 9-11, inside truth and whatnot. Or sorry, inside job, the truthers. Mm-hmm. 9 11 was an inside job. And so they have this sense of that. And, uh, but now what they've done is they've expanded that to encompass the whole world. Right. Right. And so, like, all the countries are now in on it China, Russia, Italy, all the European countries, you know, South American countries, United States. Now they're all unified, they're all a unified monolith. You know,
0: conspiring, colluding to enslave and, us. And Ryan, what did we say about this a couple episodes ago? Clearly, these people have never been project managers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's
2: Merlin Mann, who's who, who originally said that.
0: Because <laughs> he's get, like,
2: get, I just admire. I'm so amused by their optimism.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It'd be
1: impressive yeah seriously
2: (laughs) yeah and now we've now like all the scientists in the world and all the universities they're all sort of colluding
0: well you know i think another 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 element that is feeding into all of this and this sort of misplaced sense of expertise that a lot of people have out there is that you know there's something about integral that attracts big minds who are capable of great big ideas Right. And oftentimes those great big ideas don't necessarily fit in very neatly with reality as we find it sort of on the ground Hmm. today. So I often see this polarity between what I'll just call like the idealistic and the pragmatic. Right. And there's a lot of people who are attracted to integral who come here with these fully formed sort of idealistic ideas about how governance should work, how politics should work. You know, there's anarchists and minarchists and i mean there's all sorts of just sort of you know what what is today a fairly fringe political philosophy that remains again sort of within the next 20 or 30 years unviable and untenable like we're not going to create mass anarchy in the next 10 years in this country it's just not going to
2: create
0: itself it it kind of is creating itself but yeah i mean so my point being is that i think that Oftentimes, people have this this mentality that is, I think, common on some of the fringes that integral oftentimes intersects with, which is this mentality that like, here's where I want to go, guys, and I refuse to get into the car until we get there, Mm -hmm. right? So there's this dismissal of like how to engage with and how to uh, inhabit your own principles and your own ideals and your own values in relation to the world as it currently presents itself to you, right? And instead, it's like, well, the world's not living up to my expectations. And so I, you know, I'm not going to engage until it catches up with me. Well, guess what, buddy? It's not (laughs) going to catch up like with your grandkids, never mind catching up with you. So we might as well find ways to put our hands on the damn wheel and start moving again, making deliberately partial actions in order to arrive at, to bring yourself just a little bit closer to the destination that you ultimately want to be traveling in. And sometimes it's counterintuitive. Sometimes that deliberately partial kind of thing is just like, well, we need to get the pendulum to go a little bit this way before it can swing back that way. Right. Would, and that's having that. this, I think, more sophisticated <laughs> understanding and the ability to make deliberately partial and compromised decisions in order to enact bigger, better, greater results that bring more depth to a greater span. I mean, I think that this has to kind of factor into our political equations.
2: Yeah. And I, I think there's uh, I think that actually highlights uh, the, the theme of this talk right now, which is there's a sort of a lack of grounding, a a lack of grounding in current present day reality and where to go from here. It's sort of an imbalance towards the intellectual center, Mm -hmm. right? Rather than like, okay, here I am in reality. This is what reality is. What do I do now? What, where Mm -hmm. do I go from here? It's more like I'm up here in the theoretical and the possible and the ideal and i'm just going to sort of hyper focus on that because i see all the truth in that so to speak um so there's this, there's a kind of a disembodiment and a disconnection from reality that happens in that hyper focus on on the uh intellectual center and um hold on i have to... alexa stop <laughs> Is always, you know, always nagging me. Um, Alexa,
0: fix this shit. <laughs> <laughs> fix the. He doesn't know how to fix it. Oh, she just, <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, um, but you had mentioned the diamond approach.
0: Yeah, I wanted you to talk a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, and I was like, oh, am, am I going to talk about that? Okay. I guess I will, because it's been my central path for about 12 years now. And uh, but I originally thought, um, I originally thought I was going to describe my unique path. And that's an interesting distinction about the diamond approach. Is it's it's not about the diamond approach way. It's about the each unique individual soul's way right? Mm. And so I think of the diamond approach as this kind of loose framework upon which I sort of orient and hang my, uh, my own unique path on. And so I kind of make reference to it and I embody the practices. Um, it is a, it's of the fourth way lineage, which is Gurdjieff. And so, uh, which I think has a lot of relevance to this conversation. Gurjief described the fourth way as dis- different or distinct from the other three ways, which were the, the yogi, the monk, and the fakir. And so uh, each one of them corresponding to a different center. Hmm. So the yogi was the intellectual center in Gurjief's understanding the monk was the emotional center or the heart center and the Fakir, which a lot of people aren't familiar with. It's like a Sufi ascetic. The Fakir is the physical center or the sensing center or the, the belly center or the gut center. And so the fourth way was about including all three of these and balancing and harmonizing all three centers. And so, um, so the, and Ryan kind of talked about this em- embodiment. It's the center of embodiment, the, the, the gut center, or in the diamond approach, what we call the kath center, which comes from Arabic. It's the sort of the Sufi word, the kath. But in Japan, it's known as the hara. They have a very hara-centered culture. In Chinese, it's the lower dantian. But in the West, we don't have any conception of this. We don't have any conception of the gut center or the belly center. It's a very mind-centered culture. Uh, we have some awareness and knowledge of the heart, and that came forth a lot more in the 60s with the Beatles. All you need is love. But even, yeah, I mean, even a lot among a lot of spiritual people, they're, they, they tend to emphasize the heart center more and there's not a lot of awareness of
0: the, the belly center. I think the gut, yeah, the gut is standing in shadows and is often I think hijacked um, by all sorts of interest groups uh, to work against people. Interesting, yeah. yeah can see that well i mean i see i see for example a lot you know the anti-mask movement for example i see this as gut Uh, level sort of don't tell me what to do autonomy yeah married with this kind of intellectualization of like well i've got this whole different kind of medical that i'm coming from and it's bypassing the heart like one of the memes i've seen out there is you know me not wearing a mask doesn't mean i'm not a courteous person it means i'm not willing to take responsibility for your fear and then I say, "Holy shit! When did anti-compassion become a virtue in this culture?" Anti-compassion.
2: Yeah, and that's 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 the egoic autonomy.
0: Yeah, mm. it's,
2: it's gut and head bypassing heart. It's the will. It's the it's the egoic will. Yeah, um, and thinking of
1: the instructions from Judith Blackstone and her approach to embodiment, you know, around the gut, she will have. Uh, we have people attuned to the sense of power in the gut. And what's really interesting is like, if a person feels really um, averse to that, okay, your personal strength, but she really prefers the word power because it is more potent to like bring attention to that. And what's really interesting is a person may posture in a sense of feeling power, but they may do that through the shoulders, leaning for the furrowing the brows. But if we really try to get a person to inhabit, like tell me your experience of your gut right now. Are you aware of that? And if you're not, that's really interesting to pay attention to. And I think people who are doing spiritual practice can do that kind of thing. I don't know if I can talk an anti-masker into inhabiting <laughs> the gut, but, I've, but I think we have a shadow. I think that's what you're making a point of. Like, we don't talk about, we have to talk a lot about power, but we don't talk about like the experience of that gut level, you know, a healthy
2: gut. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the Diamond Approach offers some uh, differentiation between strength power, Mm. and will. Mm. These are actually three distinct uh, essential qualities, Mm. which have a basis in Sufism, uh, known as the Latayef, which are subtle centers, Latayef being the plural of Mm latifa, And so um, there's strength, which we call the red, will, which is called the white, and power, which is the black. And so uh, and what's interesting about that is that I I think a lot of these narratives, whether on the left, you know, which which includes like critical race theory or on the right, which you've got like the red pill enslavement narratives, I think of them as disempowerment narratives. Mm. They all have this sense that I am disempowered and it's their fault. Right. And so there's this hyper-focus on the power structures out there and how they are limiting me. And I don't feel that personally. I don't feel that they are limiting my power. But I see that this, there's this, what in the Diamond Approach is called a hole. There's a hole of power at the heart of these narratives. And I experienced the same thing last year when I was kind of going down that propertarianism rabbit hole.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Maybe you want to spin up our uh, our listeners who are not familiar with proprietarianism and how <laughs> it tried to intersect with integralism. Well, they,
2: I don't know that they, I don't know that they should, that they want to know about this. Um, <laughs> propertarianism is this really hard right ideology. Uh, it's, there's a lot of intelligence in it. And there's also a giant hole of power. Um, It it incorporates a lot of um, Nazi-esque science. Always a good sign.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, NASA incorporated a lot of, you know, and they, they brought us to the moon. So what's wrong with that?
2: Yeah. And so, you know, which you're suggesting, I mean, what you're pointing out is essentially... Everything is a mix, right? Even even to take the view that the Nazis were all bad means there's something being left out, right? There's a lot of intelligence operating over there. Not to defend the Nazis, because it, you know,
0: it's not a good idea. All
2: right. I'm gonna I'm gonna step away from this conversation. <laughs> but um Yeah, so this ideology, um you could call you could describe it as fascist. And they even have all these defenses against like being called an ideology. They say, well, it's not an ideology it's a methodology And so they were uh, last year and and probably still to this day, they were engaged in a lot of uh, what's called entryism, where they try to move into other movements in order to basically get a hold of territory in order to expand their own movement. And so they were coming into integral communities and really uh, coarsening the discourse, uh, acting out a lot of these holes of power, which is done through this, I mean, if you think like in the diamond approach, we've got true power and we've got false power and false power being the egoic version And all these different disempowerment narratives are all acting out this false power, which is hatred. You know, we hate this. We hate the bad guy, the enemy, and we want to destroy and annihilate, Mm -hmm. which is a reflection of the quote, annihilating quality of true power, which is actually just peace. Real power annihilates with peace. You know, it stills the soul it stills that egoic activity. But the distortion of that is, you know, projecting it outside and, and, and what, and hating that and wanting to annihilate that because that's taking away my power. That's disempowering me. So anyway, I was engaged. I was going down these different rabbit holes, not just with the propertarian propertarians, but, all the all the alt-right, all the different traditionalist rabbit holes, the traditionalist narratives, the fascists, the white supremacists and white nationalists and anti-Semites, which they pretty much all are. And, um,
0: and just to comment real quickly, you were able to sort of follow these different breadcrumb trails because you wanted to learn more about, well, these fault lines that are, you know, opening up between us yeah you were able to follow those those breadcrumbs but you had enough grounding because of your own practice to where you didn't get seduced by some of these as people often do because i think that was the point i wanted you to tell the story of propertarianism kind of trying to make its entry into integral because the only reason why it didn't was because the community leaders who were involved were themselves tremendously grounded tremendously practiced had amazing facility over not just the aqual methodology and sort of the insides and outsides of integral theory and all that, but they themselves were practiced. They were walking the walk as much as they were capable of talking the talk. And so when this stuff landed, they were able to see sort of how this intersected with their own sense of ground. And they were able to see sort of how this is going to shift again, that Overton window, that sort of that circle of permission around what we're allowed to and what yeah. we really shouldn't be allowed to talk about freely. And that, you know, if you're not grounded, if you're, if you if you, if your community is itself not grounded, then your ground will become obliterated whenever these, you know, really, really big forces try to claim new territory. And yeah. we've seen that. I mean, I think we've seen a number of people who maybe, had a little bit less grounding and maybe did fall not in a, in a not very conscious way down some of those rabbit holes and don't necessarily have an escape ladder that they've saved from themselves to climb back out. I mean, this this bear, you know, I was I was having a conversation with a, a QAnon supporter and um, that was basically my concerns that I expressed. I was like, "What if it turns out, as it probably will, that this is all crap?" but you have devoted so much of your informational terrain. You have actually distorted your own informational terrain in such a way that even if this gets proven false, when it gets proven false, there's a sunken cost fallacy that's going to make it that much harder for, because you've already invested so much in this, right? That's going to make it harder to extract yourself and to return to solid ground. Yeah. Right. It's harder to escape that quicksand. Um, And Ryan, maybe I was wrong. Maybe that quicksand, maybe, maybe the cartoons were right. And we actually are surrounded by fucking quicksand. It's just Mm -hmm. a lot more subtle (laughs) than they uh, led us to believe it would be.
2: Right. Yeah. I think that sunken cost is part of it. And the other part of it is of course, identity. Yeah. And uh, rooting identity in a narrative and in a community. And ultimately that's a false identity. And so, um, yeah, you're right. I I did go down these rabbit holes in part to understand out of curiosity, but in part out of my own hatred of those narratives and of the distortion and of the lies, Um, you know, this gets into some of that shadow territory. And I had to sort of find, find that out the hard way. Um, And there's one thing it's, it's, there's one thing it, it. so you you mentioned not be seduced. Mm -hmm. And the reason you can be seduced by these different ideologies is because there is, there are grains of truth in all of them. Of course. You know, and that's kind of the, that's the reality of the postmodern world is the fragmentation of truth into all these different, Competing nar- mini narratives,
0: mm-hmm.
2: right, or micro narratives, as it were. Um, and so, it's really seductive to then t- to see those grains of truth and be like, "Oh, these guys know what they're talking about," right? So that's part of it. But then the other part of it is that there's a traumatization, I think, that happens with these narratives, because each one has is scary. Every narrative is scary in that there's always some kind of scary, oppressive, all-powerful, evil, malicious, domineering, dominating, malevolent force. A pervasive malevolent force. And it's scary and we're all powerless to do anything about it. It has control over all of us. And this is a, this is a, like, a very scary realization. Traumatizing, mm-hmm. right? And I think what happens is people get traumatized by these narratives and then they get trauma bonded. Hmm. They get trauma bonded with these narratives and then the community's like, yeah, man, we get it. We were there too, you know, we were scared, but now we're empowering ourselves, right? To fight the pervasive malevolent force. And here's what you gotta believe, you know, this is what's right and wrong. These are your values now. These are your weapons,
0: you know, the mimetic tribe thing. It's trying to replace your ground with their ground. Yeah, and so, which is how all I, these things often work, right? I mean, we saw the same thing in uh, in GamerGate, for example, which was one of the one of the big things that led up to so much of this alt right explosion that we've seen. But the way they actually weaponized young people they they they, they were able to actually use humor and irony to radicalize young adults. weapons, yeah, yeah, effective. as weapons. And because what happens when you are able to sort of surround sort of your malevolent beliefs and 30 layers of irony is that you have no sense of where ground is anymore. Right. Irony deconstructs ground and they yeah. use it well, they use it as a shield so that if you ever call them on it, they just say, Oh, we're just, we're just being edgelords. This is just edgy humor. Right. They are we're being, right, but they don't even know where they're at. No, that's right. That's right. It's it, because it's become completely groundless. Because there's so much irony. It's like, am I being sincere in my facetious facetious kind of satire racism? I'm just just pretending to do the Nazi salute because I want to piss off my parents. And then suddenly I'm surrounded by 30 people who are like, yeah, wasn't that really funny when you did that Nazi salute and really pissed off your parents? You should go do that again in front of the BLM (laughs) protesters. That'll be hilarious. And it gets weaponized. And before you know it, people actually start taking on it. That's the seductive part of it. And
2: then it, it becomes normalized yeah. and then it becomes easy. It just becomes a smooth transition to be like, well, if this wasn't so bad, what else about the
0: Nazis weren't so bad? And, yep. and before you know it, your ground has been hijacked.
2: Yeah. So it, I, I will say it was traumatizing. It was traumatizing going down all these different rabbit holes and like, the bleakness and the just it it and the the hatred the the, the cold unfeeling callousness of these different worldviews, and um and then to be in conflict with these people and to be fighting with them and just to be, you know just to be dismissed if you try to like bring nuance to a discussion it's just like to be called a jew and right like and so um so it was traumatizing and i had to come back to some some various practices
0: yeah what helped you
2: yeah well part of it part of it is my diamond approach orientation which is um, to be comfortable with not knowing. That's the ground. Not knowing is the real ground, right? Um, at least in the head. Mm-hmm. And you can get comfortable. You, with with, you, have, you can get comfortable with that through grounding in the belly through the support of the belly, which, which I'll get to, but that is the basic orientation to be okay with not knowing. And that is something that is another thing. That's another kind of epidemic or pandemic that you see across all these different narratives is they've all got this sense of certainty. Mm -hmm. They all are confident they know what's going on. They know who the bad guys are. They know what went wrong. They know what needs to happen. And I'm just so envious. I'm like, how do, where, how do I get that? <laughs> how do I get that luxury? It's like a drug, you know? It's like, oh, I yeah. know
0: what's going on. Ooh. Yeah, Ryan, I'm I remember just, I'm, several yeah. episodes ago, Ryan, uh, you and I were talking about some of our favorite movies and stuff. And I used the example of uh, Master and Commander. Which just remains one of my all-time favorite man movies. If it's on, I watch it. And uh, one of the things we we're talking about is how you know this the, the the film is full of powerful characters, powerful archetypes, a powerful sort of orange modern, a powerful umber archetype, powerful amber archetypes, etc. And whenever I'm watching the movie, I always feel this kind of streak of envy within myself because I want to be like some of these characters, but not the main characters. Sometimes I just look at the background characters and their job is to like row the boat and they wake up in the morning and they know where they're supposed to be and they know what they're supposed to be doing. And it's to row the damn boat. And that's what gives them their set. That's all they need is that sense of place, right? Here's my contribution. I am here to row the goddamn boat. And when you hit, again, when you hit that self authoring stage, that doesn't do it anymore. You can't just go row the damn boat anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't give you that sense of belonging and, and just, you know, here's where I am located, right? Because when you hit self-authoring, it's like, you could, I mean, that's where a lot, so many of these existential crises start coming online because it's like, I, I just don't know where I am in relation to anything else. I have to make this all up by myself. And there's a, there's a, a crushing pressure with that. So I understand the seduction of regression. I understand because I can feel it. I can feel how much of my system would love to just like put everything down, right? (sighs) Relax and just row the goddamn boat. Now, I also know that that would never satisfy me. The only reason I do the work I do is because I have this pursuit of. Something of ideals or virtues or you know, what have you me, creating meaning for myself and, and all right. that stuff So I wouldn't actually be my cosmic address is not fitted to that but I can I have a nostalgia for when my cosmic address did fit it and when everything just felt like the, the world fit together the world was understandable right. and Now it's a little bit more complicated and that that complicatedness creates anxiety, creates fear, creates uncertainty, creates all of this buzzing kind of, you know, sensation in the background of your consciousness. And um, I think people get desperate to find a way to silence that constant buzz that they hear.
2: Yeah. And I liked your, uh, the row the boat analogy, because actually, um, what that represents to me is the constraints recognizing the constraints of your reality, having constraints on your, rea- on your reality, you know, it it's, you wake up in the morning, you know, that your job, you're, you're stuck on this boat, you know, that your job is just to row the boat and that is being grounded in the, in a kind of direct experience of reality. And that is another thing from the diamond approach Diamond Approach is like very heavily grounded in an epistemology of direct experience. What do I know? There's a distinction between um, basic knowledge and ordinary knowledge. Basic knowledge is what you know from direct experience. Ordinary knowledge is everything else you know. And basic knowledge trumps ordinary knowledge. And so when I'm going down these different rabbit holes and I'm finding these kernels of truth, I, I, what keeps me from getting lost down these various narratives, lost in these various narratives is coming back to what do I know? What do I know with immediacy, with directness from experience, from direct experience? Not much, mm. you know? And so... There's a kind of honesty and humility and openness that comes with that. Um, Really all I've learned from direct experience is about the characteristics of these different communities. A meta awareness of the different micro narratives. And so that's where my focus is, particularly in the integral community. Uh, It's like a focus on Recognizing the characteristics of this community that I've seen generalized across all the narratives, right. and so that's that's where that's where I'm orienting from is is my own direct experience.
0: So, so that's fascinating. And that's important because you have a practice that you've been engaged with for how long? How long have you been practicing Diamond Approach? Dozen years, yeah, dozen years. So you've got plenty of hours of practice. And the cumulative result of that practice is this hyper emphasis on evidence driven spirituality. Let's just call it. Yeah. Right. Evidence driven knowledge, evidence driven wisdom, evidence. It's all based on evidence. So you already are engaged in a practice that has created for you guardrails against narrative truths that are unfalsifiable. So you've right. already got. So imagine going down those rabbit holes without that practice, without that constant reminder, that superego sort of sitting above the rest of your consciousness, yeah. reminding you that, like, okay, what do you know? What do you? Actually I would have, have? gotten. I would have
2: gotten ensnared. You know, like when yeah. I'm a re- like when I was reading about uh, Elijah. What was what was his name? McLean. Elijah Elijah McLean. I was just like, like. Ah, like that, that hit me so strongly and the sadness of it and the injustice of it and like is clear, The you know, the sort of racial bias that was present there. And I felt, I never felt so close to, you know, just, all right, sign me up yeah. for the... I'm a radical now. Know, sign me up for critical race theory. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm in, you know, Because it's better this. than that. Right, You know, it's like, so I get it, man. Yeah. I get it. And, um, and there are other ones too. It's like going down the traditionalist rabbit holes and the traditionalists are reacting to the nihilism. The nihilism at the heart of the postmodern condition and the traditionalists, they see the collapse into nihilism, narcissism, hedonism, And they're just like that is so wrong, Mm -hmm. and here's what's been lost, right? And so they see that, but then they sort of regress. Right? They do that narrative regression.
0: They fall into the hedonism and their own version of nihilism. And
2: well, well, what they regress to the traditionalists, the neo-traditionalists, is they regress to a hyper order and uh you know hyper structuring and um kind of these like mythic conformist kind of oppressive rule based paradigms as a way of dealing with the nihilism and its you know and the and the hedonism and the narcissism and it's understandable
0: mm.
2: it's totally understandable but um you know knowing what i know and, and that brings us some of the awareness, uh, the integral frameworks. It's like, okay, I know what amber looks like. So as soon as I start to act out from this amber place, I'm going to get curious. Okay. And that's another sort of practice that I'm grounded in from the diamond approach, which is curiosity and inquiry. Mm-hmm so the path is it's not like buddhism per se which at the heart of it is freedom from suffering right the four noble truths at the at the heart of the diamond approach is just curiosity that's what leads the way it's just like a desire to know like what is reality what is who who and what am i what is consciousness what is truth what is happening here inside me, outside me? Is there a difference between inside and outside? It's just like curiosity is, can just go in any direction, you know? And so that is the thing. So that's the other practice I feel grounds me um, is, is curiosity.
0: That's, that's, that's a big one. And, and I want to, I want to start moving. Um, I know Ryan, I think you have another engagement that you need to hop off for in, in a little bit. So I want to start wrapping this up, but I just want to kind of put a bow on what you're saying, Marshall, because you're actually, I think um, exemplifying the three primary heuristics of integral thinking, which is non-exclusion, enfoldment, and enactment. And you're actually displaying um, a mature capacity to do all three of these, and I, it's it's something that I want to help spell out a little bit more for our audience because, you know, the very first move, that non-exclusion move, that if, if 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 that is your only heuristic, then that says let's throw everything on the table, right? There's nothing off limits here. Non-exclusion. I can take a look at anything. It's all fair game. Let's just see what happens but then you get to the second stage which is enfoldment and that means okay now i need the discernment right so i have the curiosity i have the cur- enough curiosity to get me going in non exclusion and to just seek out all these different kinds of sources of information now that i ha- now that that curiosity is provided all this these fruits and i you know have this all on the table now i need some basic discernment to figure out okay what's more or less true relative to everything else how do we actually start folding these in, and it's not just a horizontal folding, it's a vertical unfolding. This is more true than this. This might have a partial truth, but it's still less true than this. And so how do we start stacking it all up? And all of that gets guided by enactment. If you want to know that, then do this, right? If that, if that quality, if that evidence-based quality is not at the forefront when you're doing either of the 1st do two, non-exclusion or enfoldment, then you're gonna miss something really important and you're gonna get your own ground screwed up as a result. So what I see with you is that you were actually, you had the curiosity, you had the non-exclusion curiosity, said, I really wanna know, I wanna learn more, I wanna have an accurate sense of what these people, I don't wanna just straw man them, I don't want them to just be sitting in my shadow, I wanna know with clarity who they are, what they're talking about and what they're advocating so that I can, Fold that into my own sort of compass, whatever that might be. Um, And that compass is itself driven by evidence. It can't just be a narrative kind of base. So we're seeing how having practice in each of these, having the right practices, having the right mindsets, having the right frameworks for each of these three heuristics is just staggeringly important. And without them, we get lost. We sink in the quicksand.
2: Yeah. And I just and just to I just want to quickly make one more point um, so that Ryan can jump off here. Um, I I've been thinking about shadow, and we don't have any such concept in the diamond approach. And I got curious about that, and I wondered why. And you know, in the in and that concept comes from Jung, right? And in Jung Jungian psychology the shadow is really just the unconscious self it's the sh- it's the self that's unconscious and i see this kind of dualistic split that that is happening when people talk about shadow that it is innately dark right it's dark material it's all the bad stuff so to speak it's that's that's how it's represented a lot it can often be um, the good stuff too But yeah, from and that needs to be emphasized because Mm -hmm. from the perspective of like the diamond approach, every it's like ninety nine percent is unconscious. Mm There we don't know the major the vast majority of our being. Okay, and so presence is in the shadow. You know, Uh, non dual awareness is in the shadow love can be in the shadow some people have have cut off their love
0: joy joy can be in the
2: shadow compassion can be in the shadow strength Greatness, can be in the power. shadow
0: yep healthy power, power can, can be in, be in the, the shadow shower.
2: so like even positive qualities are to be found in the shadow and so i just kind of want to correct some of this uh, this sort of sense that shadow is the bad stuff the dark stuff this you know the unex the stuff that's unacceptable to society Mm -hmm. it's like no your your love
0: can be there too hey ryan how about next month inhabit your shadow sure have we not done that we've done inhabit your wound okay a little bit different
1: for me I, i i let's do it yeah i mean for me actually i i tend to use like a wound or something like that instead of shadow often um simply be probably for some of the reasons Marshall mentioned, because, you know, it, there's always a sense of reclaiming what is good in ourselves actually we get cut off from our full power cut off from our, our ability to know the world, things like that. So I, I, yeah, shadow sometimes it just gets a little too cut and dry, you know, and,
2: and maybe, and, and and uh, maybe but, that's uh,
1: why... but we can do it. Let's totally do it. I mean, why, yeah. we, we probably can't get, get, uh, do too much on this. <laughs> so,
0: well, the so. ironic <laughs> thing is that, you know, like Ken often talks about the three to one pro- process that is a process of literally inhabiting your shadow, right? Yeah, and
1: there's a process too of just, uh, to Marshall's point, of a uh, process of, of making what is unconscious conscious, which can be different things. So like from the perspective of maturing, it's of like uh, exposing assumptions we have about how things are, which isn't necessarily shadow, like a wound that we carry with us, a pattern of reacting. I say the negative stuff is sometimes how we act from what we are aren't aware of, you know, so like if we had some upbringing and we experienced abuse or trauma, and then now we act out and lash out at the world because of that unconscious, that part's negative and and potentially harmful to others. Uh, But yeah, I think that's an interesting thing of like, for example, Robert Keegan's suggestions on how do you expose these Things that are operating unconsciously in our minds how can we have a process of seeing that more and more easily and then how do we see shadow and sometimes for me it feels a little different because they're both sometimes gonna be tricky in their own ways of revealing that but sometimes like in the spiritual sense of like the practice of just sitting with not knowing i find yeah to be really helpful on all accounts <laughs> it's a tool i bring so yeah the not
2: knowing the curiosity curiosity uh, and love, and love. Yeah. You know, love is the key to it, sort of like lubricates the works. Yeah. It sort yeah. of softens and allows these things to want to open up and reveal themselves. You need that. You need that. Yeah. And I think in the interval community, sometimes in the past, yeah, the shadow's like, let's get that fucking shadow.
1: <laughs> you know, right. it's like, it oh, it. that's get, it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Where
2: like that won't work. It just right. won't work. If it's a shadow, like the Root word. force. About. Yeah, right. brute, brute force, dosa. Because there's young children. There's young, very young children at the core of all of these yeah, issues. And so, so common. Yep. got to have love. The Love
0: there. is critical.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, guys, I think this has been useful. And we've actually um, been through just a, a, a slew of practices going from the physical all the way up to, you know, the absolute ground of being the ultimate ground that we can find. Um, and I think this has just been such a rich conversation. I mean, we've talked about, and let's just kind of maybe spell it out for people as we close up here, but you know, on the physical level, I mean, eat your fucking vegetables and exercise, right? (laughs) I mean, you need stamina. Stamina is a big part of your actual physical. I disagree about eating
2: vegetables, but that's, that's my (laughs) my heterodox (laughs) views on health coming in here.
0: (laughs) On, on an emotional level, practice, do shadow work, right? Do, uh. Uh, do some work around empathy and around vulnerability and around sensitivity, practice opening yourself up in an emotional way and actually uh, tracking what happens within that space uh, on a newospheric kind of intellectual sense. I mean, the integral model is not a bad place to start learning something like polarity management. We've got a really super cheap course on integral life guys. It's like, I don't know, $100 if you're not a member, 50 bucks if you are for, for managing polarities with being the Sharma. I promise you this will give you the tools that you need in order to like maintain your sense of ground and not allow it to get hijacked by anyone else. And then yeah, finally at sort of the, the crown of it all is practices that get you in direct and immediate touch with the ultimate ground of being because there's no way that's gonna shift from underneath you. It's all there is and it's unmovable. It's untouchable Um, and reality is, I I often like to say reality is the sound of an unstoppable force hitting an unmovable subject. And that unmovable subject is what these, you know, really high level practices allow us to um, come into relationship with and to begin to identify with in a certain sense. So all of these I think are going to help us um, individually and collectively maintain that sense of grounding as sort of the gale forces of reality come buffeting all around us and trying to push us in one direction or the other decent summary you guys everything you want to add wow speechless i fucking love it (laughs) (laughs) well gentlemen this has been awesome Ryan, any uh any final words my friend no no you
1: always do great summaries so yeah nice to have you on Marshall
0: yeah thank, thank you, you Marshall for joining us and thank you for everyone uh, for joining us too our, our YouTube comments were really active this time which was really yeah, awesome. I'm going to spend a little time with them uh, after we get off and again if you have anything to say about this episode please let us know in the comments down below I'm assuming you're watching this published on IntegralLife.com or on YouTube let us know what you think and we'll bring in uh, some of your perspectives into future episodes in the meantime thanks guys Thanks so much. All See right. you later. See ya. Ciao for
2: now.